Good morning, and welcome to Connections Radio Show. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and our show is all about exploring a wide range of topics that challenge us to see ourselves, our community, and the world around us that get us thinking, get us wondering, get us talking, get us challenging each other and exploring new things and perhaps getting connected and inspired to do a bit more because we made the connection. The first Saturday of the month always belongs to the Eastside Freedom Library. So it's Happy New Year and Happy Eastside Freedom Library. Welcome, Peter. Peter uh, Reckliffe is my co-host for all of our Eastside Freedom Library shows. And it's a great way to begin the year. It is. I love all the wonderful things that happen on Eastside. You bring history, you bring art, you bring social questions, you bring community together. And we like to bring a little bit of that to our community of connections. And it's all about telling stories. And yes. We have people with us today who tell important stories in lots of different ways. I would love to have you do the introductions for all of We have three guests. We have, as you said earlier, an embarrassment of riches. Wonderfully bright, talented right. people. Right. I mean, at the, the rate that we're going in our relationship, Lori, we're eventually going to have to have a bigger studio. And, and longer time. <laughs> and, and longer time. Absolutely. We'll do the morning right. show. The right. three-hour morning right. show. Right. So today we have Sheila O'Connor, who is the author of an incredibly interesting book that I've just finished reading uh, called The Evidence of V. Um, And we have Will Cooley, who is a historian, um, actually lucky me, a former student of mine, um, who has published a great book on the development of the black middle class in Chicago and their role in holding the city together, um, called Moving Up, Moving Out. And then we have my old friend Douglas Hewitt, uh, who is a multi-instrumentalist and a creator of good music, um, and, uh, and a great uh, producer of knowledge in many different forms. So we have a great group here today, and we're hopeful that Not only will we hear about what each of these great individuals will do at the library this coming month, but maybe we'll even have a little time to have a conversation. And I'm going to have each of them just say hello. Sheila, uh, you're going to be doing a a talk on January 23rd at the Eastside Freedom Library. I'm going to be part of a panel on January 23rd at Eastside Freedom Library. Wonderful. And Will, your Blacks Moving Up and Moving Out, uh, you'll be doing a presentation on January 9th. I'll be there. (laughs) And Douglas, Douglas Ewart, we've got a concert coming up on January 25th, but for those who want to hear the interview, you and Peter are going to have a chat on January 24th, and then you'll be playing your music on January 25th at 8 p.m. With an eight-piece ensemble of outstanding artists. Some from the Twin Cities and some from outside. So we have a wonderful show today. And I'd like to start our show uh, with Sheila and learning more about your book uh, and why you wrote your book. And and you make it very clear that this is fiction, but it's based in history and it's based in a, a personal relationship. It's The book is actually fiction, nonfiction, um, archival documents, historical photos. So the book is a kind of assemblage or collage, but pieces of the book are fiction, yes. But you inhabited the characters. Yes, yeah. Well, the primary part of the book that is fictionalized is the story of the character V, who is... um, was inspired by my maternal grandmother, who was a singer and a dancer, a performer in Minneapolis, and at the age of 15 was pregnant with my mother and committed for six years to the Minnesota Home School for Girls in Sauk Center, Minnesota in 1935. So she was incarcerated for being, and I'm putting air quotes out here, immoral? She, in in my grandmother's particular case, her label was incorrigible. Incorrigible and moral are interchangeable when it comes to what they called the girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she was pregnant. And... Um, so she was sentenced for six years. My mother was placed for adoption. This was a story that was not known. It was a buried story until we were essentially able to find the records at the 
library at the Minnesota Historical Society petitioned the courts to have the records opened, and that began my research into what, how did this happen? How did something like this even occur? Were you ever able to connect with your grandmother? No. Mm -mm. Had she passed by the time you discovered, or yes, was there? Yes, you know? she was not alive when I found these records. I found these records in the in two thousand and one. Mm. And then you were inspired to find more and and yeah. and give the connections, the whys. Yes. The, well, the first thing, I was with my mother when we went to find the records, because it was her mother and mm -hmm. the story of her birth, essentially. And when I discovered, the first thing, you know, was looking at her paper where the sheriff was taking her and holding her until the age of 21. And I just quickly did that math, and it was quite devastating. And I didn't understand what could she possibly have done? And, and the records didn't indicate what she had done. There, there was no indication that she had done anything, really, um, besides, you know, staying out late, missing school. But that's, that's not worthy of a six-year sentence. And so it took me many, many years to understand, because there's very little research available on this school and what happened in the 1930s. Was it considered a secret? Was this put on as a secret, or was just what not talked about? You mean about? when the girls? Yeah. Well, I mean, they took them out of their communities, and they just put them away. <laughs> and, and this occurs even today. So I don't know. I mean, I kind of, I like to ask ask myself even how much do i know about what happens to girls who are incarcerated today which would be zero you know i mean they're gone they're out of their community and they're in the hands of the the government essentially or now in you know in private institutions and so as you were looking for source material to understand and to create this fictional character tell me about that journey well the source material is is very scarce because the girls did not go on to tell their story um, for many reasons, but predominantly because of shame, you know, because they were the ones that were considered guilty if they were sexually abused, a victim of a rape, it didn't matter, you know, it was their, the shame was theirs. Many of them attempted to escape, my grandmother escaped and would have been a fugitive then from that point forward if their escapes were successful. When when they were caught, they went back and, and their time was very difficult. They were held in solitary confinement, put on restricted diets, sometimes for months, you know, head shaved. Um, and then their sentences began again. This is also how somebody begins as a 12-year-old in the criminal justice system and ends up in it till they're 60, you know, because every time they escaped, they started over, basically. At, at the age of 18, they were paroled into private homes as house servants. So the training that they received were, was to be house servants only. As you were writing this, were there pieces that impacted you more than others that was difficult to write or you felt like this is this is this gem it really says everything that i want to say is there there was some part that you'd like to share today that that you felt very um close to i think what happened to me was that what began as a story of my grandmother became a story of thousands tens of thousands of girls in Minnesota and across the United States because this practice existed in every state in America in 1935 so if and and beyond you so know. like pulling a thread opened yes, up yes and really just being struck by the fact that none of them have ever been vindicated you know none of them have ever had the truth told the guilt is still theirs the shame is still theirs and when the book came out, I immediately began hearing from people who said this is the first time they've ever told anyone this story. 
either that they were there or that they were born there or that they know a family member was held there. Because so even everyone, being associated was a yeah, shame. It, you know, it, it, it goes back to the letter A. Yes, you know? <laughs> and, and if, you could, if you could get out of there and start a life again, if you had any chance of doing that, why would you ever tell someone you had been incarcerated there? You know, so whatever was done to them, whatever happened to them, they have never ever had the opportunity to say that this was wrong. And you teach at Hamlin? Yeah, I teach at the I teach in the creative writing programs at Hamlin. Well, the day that you're going to be uh, sharing will be January 23rd at 7 p.m. And Peter, you'll be co-hosting that, right? Well, I mean, like I co-host <laughs> everything, you know, yeah. tell people where sort the restrooms kinda. are. Yeah. Um, but I think that at her own suggestion, Sheila's event is not going to be just presenting her book. Right. It's going to be a conversation with women who have directly experienced uh, what she's writing about. Yes. The panel. You the yes. panel. Yes, so I will be with Tanya Hansi and um, Kaylee Griffith, both incarceration survivors and activists, justice activists for criminal justice reform, and Colleen Bell, who is uh, also a criminal justice um, activist and does work at is a professor at Hamlin University, teaches a course on engendering justice. So we will all be together discussing not just the fact that this happened, which is shocking to people, but that it is continuing to happen in all kinds of ways that um, we aren't even accounting for right now. And you can purchase the book while you come? Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> and I'm sure that books are available at local uh, independent bookstores? Yes, they are. As mm -hmm. well as going online? Yes. And the name of the book is Evidence of V. Yes. Written by Sheila O'Connor. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Uh, stay with us. We're, our next guest, Will Cooley, will be talking about Chicago blacks moving up and moving out. Um, what held Chicago together? What holds Chicago together? Good questions. Stay with us. I'm Peter Rackler from the Eastside Freedom Library, and I'd like to tell you about an historic place on Payne Avenue, Brunson's Pub. Experience history and passion through the delicious menu, reflecting the Eastside's diversity. The choices are limitless. Salads, sandwiches, burgers, and shareable plates. Visit Brunson's Pub at 956 Payne Avenue and grab a discounted gift card when you mention that you're an AM 950 listener or a supporter of the Eastside Freedom Library. Be sure to check out Brunson'sPub.com. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Join us for New Beginnings, Saturday mornings at 11, brought to you in part by Vision Loss Resources. Hi, this is Charlie. Dad, don't embarrass me by making me say this. What does a used iPhone go for today? Fine. My dad is the greatest fantasy football player of all time, Matt McNeil. I won our league this year! Ugh. When I'm getting together with my friends without my dad, we always go in my Sienna. Not only does it drive great in winter conditions, but it can easily fit all my friends with seating up to eight. My son's friend's parents request he drive because he has a Sienna. It tells you everything you need to know about their safety and reliability. See for yourself at Rudy Luther Toyota, 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Hi, this is Ken Hagland, host of Living Healthy and Aging Well, inviting you to listen to our new show airing on Saturdays from noon to one, where we talk about your health and your life and provide insights to living and aging well. Each week, we provide answers to important questions regarding health care, elder care, end-of-life care, and caregiver support to help you and your loved ones plan for the future and enjoy your highest quality of life today. Please join us every Saturday from noon to one for Living Healthy and Aging Well. My part-time service in the Army National Guard makes it possible for me to be more for the community I call home. I'm a better neighbor because my service has taught me how important it is to be a team player. My training helps me in my classes when I give attention to detail to the task at hand. My service also allows me to be there for my community in ways others can't. I help my hometown recover after nature strikes. My service in the Army National Guard allows me to keep my country and those I care about safe from threats. 
I also work with a network of professionals that help me succeed. Also, the Army National Guard's education benefits make getting a higher education a reality. Being an Army National Guard soldier makes living and serving in my community more rewarding every day. Learn more about how you too can live and serve part-time, close to home, by visiting NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Minnesota Army National Guard. Aired by the Minnesota Broadcasters Association and this station. Welcome back. And as Peter Ratcliffe has just shared, our our sponsor is Brunson's Pub. And we want to make sure. We want to thank them. Big, big thank you to Brunson's Pub, who who is our sponsor, who's been our sponsor for over a year. And we are deeply deeply grateful. Um, If you've not been to Brunson's Pub, it's a place where history and passion are part of every detail. You can start with a menu. It's inspired by the neighborhood. Um, When you want to come, write this down. It's 956 Payne Avenue. And you can grab a discounted gift card when you mention that you're an AM 950 listener or that you're a supporter of the Eastside Freedom Library. You can learn more about the Eastside Freedom Library you can learn more about actually Brunson's Pub by going to brunsonspub.com. Welcome, Peter, and welcome to the Eastside Freedom Library. It's the first Saturday of the month, so of course it's Eastside Freedom Library Day. Yeah, and, and mentioning Brunson's makes me want some Hoppin' John, which, Ooh, is, yes. which is their specialty of the house. Come I, and get the Hoppin' John. They have a variety, and, oh, yeah. and I love going in. It really is uh, feeling like you're going back in history. But it's yeah. also for good... Um, uh, sports buffs, especially yeah. hockey players. This is a great place for hockey folks to hang out, uh, including the uh, the ref from the Olympics. I'm trying to think of his name. You I'm, stumped me. Oh no 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 no! Uh, we we all know this guy's name. I'm gonna during the break. I'm gonna get his name back up. But he was he used to hang out there, so it's a great place to hang. Uh, in this segment, though, it's hard to do a segue, but I'm going to make a segue. We'll talk about uh, Chicago. And a piece of history. There we go. We'll link it to history. Uh, We have several guests here today. Sheila O'Connor shared with us in the last segment about the evidence of V, a fictional uh, historical novel um, about women who've been incarcerated and a conversation about that. Um, We have Will Cooley, who will be sharing uh, in this segment about Chicago, Chicago Blacks moving up and moving out. But I also want folks to know that in studio we have Douglas Ewart, who is a musician, and he will be uh, sharing sharing with our group about his good music. And that'll be coming up. But right now, we're going to go back to Will. Chicago Blacks moving up and moving out. What held Chicago together? There's the north side and the south side. So tell me more about it. Yeah, a deeply divided city. And uh, certainly has had plenty of unrest in this last century. So one of the main questions motivating my research is how did it stay together? Why did it not become Detroit or St. Louis? And uh, as Peter mentioned, I was one of his uh, students. uh, And he always encouraged us to look at the offstage moment. What aren't we looking at? And I have to admit that I don't think we looked at the middle class a lot in your uh, classes. That was not a subject. Labor, uh, I would assume. (laughs) Labor historians really struggle with what to do with the the middle classes. And uh, so I found my offstage moment in the black middle class. And what I discovered is uh, some historians said they came to Chicago from the south mainly, uh, people migrating, with modest goals. Uh, I found the opposite. They had high goals. Uh, they they had uh, big dreams. Aspirations. Aspirations. Uh, some people even called it uh, the aspirational class. Uh, they had big aspirations for uh, Chicago. And it was to move up and then move outward and out of the tougher uh, neighborhoods in the city. And a lot of that had to do with they wanted a clean collar, what we'd probably call white collar now, right? And they wanted some authority and they wanted good jobs. And so that's where uh, my study started. So tell me what you found. I found it was extremely difficult uh, to move up in Chicago. Just about every avenue uh, that they looked for uh, to to move up in the world was blocked. Uh, uh, Mainstream occupations almost completely shut off to them. And that's uh, different than any other ethnic group uh, that moved from Europe uh, to Chicago. So I'll just give one example that a lot of people don't even think about. Chicago's outfit. It's organized crime uh, group. 
Chicago's organized crime group is not just Italian. That's a myth. Uh, every ethnic group is represented, and it wasn't Italians calling the shots and Greeks and Jews uh, lower down. It was uh, an equal, non-hierarchical group. No African Americans allowed in management positions. Mm. When African Americans did carve out a space for themselves, uh, the outfit uh, collaborated with police and had some people murdered, had some people kidnapped, and took over that as well. So what you see uh, with Southside African Americans is vice being allowed in their neighborhoods, prostitution, gambling, drugs, and they don't even have control of this in their own neighborhoods. So even a situation like that, a non-mainstream one, is one they found themselves blocked off from advancing up. So extremely difficult, and I credit uh, the black middle class for having incredible perseverance and resilience uh, in finding some of these avenues. You know, some people, for instance, say, well, affirmative action was crafted by government bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. No, affirmative action was uh, crafted by African Americans doing the work of integrating uh, workspaces. Something we talked about earlier is there's a myth um, that everyone wants everyone to succeed. Mm -hmm. And that the American ethos is one of, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, yeah. we're all there to, you know, clap our hands and support you into the next level. Yeah. Is that true? Uh, I think one of the things I, I develop here is that African Americans developed kind of a cynical version of the American dream, that they believed uh, that they could move up, and they would move up. There's that Langston Hughes poem, right, The Crystal Stair, uh, how difficult it's going to be to move up, but... The mother in the poem does say, we're going to keep on moving, right? Mm -hmm. But extremely difficult. And you know, one of the things I, I look at is that uh, white notion that if we could just find the acceptable black person, right. we would allow them into our neighborhood or into our workplace. Well, I look at two cases. One is Mahala Jackson, the great uh, gospel singer. And she moves into a south side neighborhood. And who, who wouldn't want Mahala Jackson in, her neighbor, in their neighborhood? Uh, they shoot out her windows. Uh, they harass her constantly. Uh, for sale signs start popping up all over in her neighborhood. Uh, she, she talks about how heartbroken she was. She said it was like being kicked out of a family to see that these white people who would buy her music and would praise her didn't want to live next to her. Uh, the other one is Percy Julian. He was a scientist, um, an executive in the Glidden Corporation. Chicagoan of the Year in 1949, when he moves into Oak Park, which is an upscale uh, suburb, uh, they bomb his house. Uh, first, they try to do everything possible not to allow him to have the house, including shutting his city water off. Uh, they bomb his house. Uh, they threaten him uh, nonstop. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a funny story, although heartbreaking. His son, Percy was a busy man, uh, and his son didn't get to spend a lot of time with him. But he said one bonding moment they had is they would uh, sit with guns uh, waiting for white people to come attack their house. Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a, a father-son moment, right, <laughs> of fighting off racism. Mm -hmm. But Mahalia Jackson stayed in that neighborhood. Percy Julian stayed in that neighborhood. They were not going to allow people to move them out. And again, that speaks to that resilience and perseverance that held Chicago together. They believed in Chicago even when Chicago tried to uh, shut them out. Can I, so how do you see something like Lorraine Hansberry's A, a Raisin in the Sun mm -hmm. as what, yeah. is, what, what it's coming out of and what it's expressing and what it comes to mean? All right. So complicated, right? Yes. Because yes. Lorraine's uh, father is the Kitchenette King of Chicago and an exploitative landlord. <laughs> and uh, when they move into that uh, white neighborhood, which is uh, a searing part of their lives, you know, she talks about her mother. Uh, having to carry a Luger around the house, waiting for white people to come to try to chase them out. But on the other hand, uh, the complicated part of the story is that once the Hansberry started moving into these neighborhoods, they bought up more houses, subdivided them, jacked up the rents, and they became <laughs> sort of an enemy in, in, wow. among some people in Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, she, she, was a, she had a very privileged uh, lifestyle, right? The, fa the younger family is not her family. Uh, so she's grasp, grappling with that her whole life as a socialist, mm -hmm. right, trying to grapple right. with the fact that the complications. Uh, complications that her dad was a landlord. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, you know, I have an entire chapter in here of the black middle class moving out to the uh, southern reaches of Chicago and then doing everything in their power to keep working class blacks out of that neighborhood. Uh, no subdivisions, closing down taverns, not allowing storefront preachers. Mm -hmm. Right, that was a sign of working class people, right. and so there's a lot of class conflict within the African American community in this story too. 
And how does that inform us today, do you think? Well, the, the uh, epilogue of the story talks about a lot of African Americans have started giving up on Chicago. Uh, we never would have guessed this even maybe 20, 30 years ago, but we have an exodus of Chicagoans to places like Atlanta. They are just leaving. Um, a lot of these middle-class neighborhoods have uh, fallen into disrepair. Um, a lot of middle-class African-Americans have now moved into the suburbs. So I don't end on a positive note. Uh, they did hold Chicago together for a long time, uh, but uh, there was only so much they could do. You know, this is one of the things we talk about in my classes a lot. Uh, African-Americans have this responsibility to lift as we climb. Middle-class mm -hmm. African-Americans are expected to pick everybody up with them on their journey upward. Uh, we talk about that as a burden. So my black students say, well, no, this is a responsibility, and this is a responsibility we enjoy. But really, how much are they capable of? These were not major business owners. Mm -hmm. These were not wealthy people. They were middle-class people who were just trying to get by, just like everybody else. So when we put the burden on middle-class African-Americans, uh, that's deeply irresponsible of us as a society because it's just not possible. We all have to uh, do things to lift everyone up. And a recommendation that you would have them? <laughs> oh man, that's a, that's a very complicated <laughs> story, but of course it all comes down to wages. Mm -hmm. um, we need higher wages. Uh, right now we're talking a lot about housing and even in the poorer neighborhoods of Chicago, unaffordable housing. We really don't have unaffordable housing. We have wages that have stagnated for so long that people can't afford the houses that their parents could afford. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things, one of the reasons that the black middle class was so resilient. Um, I've got a lot of examples in here where they say, it was so difficult being the only black worker in this office. Mm -hmm. uh, one guy I talk about, he came in, first day of work, his white co-workers hang a giant George Wallace for president sign. Oh. Yeah, uh, to let him know what was going on. And right? where they stood. And where they stood. And having to answer for everything as being the token black person in the office, right? What are the Black Panthers doing? What, I mean, every time something would happen, they would come to, this, come to this person, many of these people, as if they spoke for all black Americans, right? But they said, at the end of the day, it was worth it because I was paid well and uh, it was a good job and I had some authority and it was the kind of things that my parents wanted for me when we came to Chicago. So wages and matter. And the price to pay for it. It was the price to pay, and it was definitely an unfair price and an unfair burden. But a lot of them ended up enjoying the, the fruits of their labor. And I want to encourage our audience to come see Will Cooley on January 9th, 7 p.m. at the Eastside Freedom Library. For more information, you can go to the eastsidefreedomlibrary.org. And we'll be right back. We're going to hear more. Uh, what a great conversation today with wonderful, smart people about important issues. And we're glad that you've joined us today. Promoting happiness through health and helping out. That's Cocoa Bee and Nut Grain-Free Granola. Cocoa Bee and Nut is a locally made gluten-free grain-free granola that anyone can incorporate into their day, be it breakfast, lunch, dinner, or a snack. Our hearty blend of nuts and seeds mixed with honey, coconut oil, and healthy spices will make your taste buds tap dance and your heart will be happy knowing you've helped someone out. Yes, Cocoa Bee and Nut donates 10% of all sales to charity. For more information or to buy, visit CocoaBeeandNut.com. This is Chad, owner of AM950. Our station has worked with Barbara from WYSIWYG Web Design for years on everything from logo to print design and especially for developing our website. She does great work and is great to work with listening to what our goals and design ideas were while offering new, innovative ideas to create the website we are proud of today. Barbara made sure she understood our station, our goals, and our mission before she started working on our site and made suggestions to help control the cost. Plus, she's friendly, which set us at ease. I recommend Barbara at WYSIWYG Web Design because I know she will deliver an attractive, professional website within the budget you have. She is a local independent business that specializes in helping other local businesses achieve their website and design goals. She can work with nearly any budget and create anything from simple sites to robust custom functionality. To find out more about the company AM950 Trust, go to WYSIWYGWebDesign.com. Spelled out just like it sounds, WYSIWYGWebDesign.com. 
When you need legal assistance, let the Minnesota Lawyer and Referral Information Service help you find the right attorney. It's a new and enhanced program of the Hennepin and Ramsey County Bar Associations. They have professional, experienced referral counselors who can connect you to vetted attorneys practicing in employment law, divorce, bankruptcy, DUI, and much more. Take the stress out of finding a lawyer. Call 612-752-6699 or go to mnlawyerreferral.org. The right call for the right lawyer. Hi, this is Ryan, owner of Snap Construction. It's been great working with so many of the passionate AM950 listeners over the years. We have realized how important AM950 is to the community. I want to see AM950 continue to grow and continue to thrive into the future. To help continue to grow, Snap Construction will be putting up proceeds to assist the station in marketing on social media. Snap Construction encourages you to do your part by liking and sharing the content on AM950 social media platforms. This is Chad, owner of AM950. Ryan has always told me the best time to get work done is during the cold months of the year because demand is much lower. He is backing that up again by offering 30% off labor on windows and siding from now until the end of December. Call Snap Construction now to get 30% off labor on windows and siding. As always, Snap Construction stands by their work with a lifetime craftsmanship warranty. Trust the company AM950. Trust Snap Construction. Arguably the most well-reviewed roofing, siding, and window contractor in the metro area. Get a free estimate by calling 612-333-SNAP or find them online at snapconstruction.com. Financing options available. With your AM 950 weather, this is Eric Nelson. Today will be mostly cloudy with a high of 28, a 20% chance of snow before midnight, and temperatures rising to around 31. Sunday, a slight chance of snow again before noon with highs of 37 and a low of 20. Monday will be sunny with a high of 28 and a low of 15. AM 950 is brought to you by Eat Local Minnesota. Click away from the usual and find a list of one-of-a-kind local restaurants at eatlocalminnesota.com. From elegant to casual, exotic to comfort food, they've got everything and more. Find the full list of incredible nearby restaurants at eatlocalminnesota.com. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and we have Peter Ratcliffe, my co-host, from the Eastside Freedom Library. Welcome. Thank you. Hello to everybody out there. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. 2020. Does that mean we have 2020 vision now? We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) We've got some great guests that will be... uh, Coming to your Eastside Freedom Library and sharing their art and their artistry and their ideas and scholarship. Um, we have Sheila O'Connor, who was with us in our first segment, uh, who's going to be on January 23rd at 7 p.m. sharing about evidence of V in a panel discussion. And we're glad you're here today, Sheila. And the panel discussion will be looking at um, incarceration of girls. And uh, what's that about then and now? And uh, how are we impacted today, as well as understanding the incarceration of the past, 1931, uh, Sock Center to be exact. Amazing book that I'm looking forward to reading. We also heard from Will Cooley in our last segment, and Will shared about Chicago. Um, Chicago blacks moving up and moving out, what held Chicago together, uh, looking at the middle class, and how, how did that work? And why did it work? And is it working now? And highly recommend that you join Will on January 9th at 7 p.m. at the Eastside Freedom Library. And in this segment, we are delighted to have Douglas Ewart, who will be playing Peter on January 25th. Uh, As part of an ensemble of eight performers, um, Saturday night, January 25th at 8 p.m. And you're going to be hanging out on January 24th. Right, so we're trying to introduce a program at the library of uh, educating a growing audience and particularly a younger audience in the various forms and permutations of creative and improvised music and and what soil that music grows in and what impact that music can have. And so one of the ways that we're trying to do that is by doing a series of interviews with composers, musicians, uh, creative artists, particularly from the black community. Um, And so Douglas is going to be the first of our interviews. And those will be done in front of an audience. They will be live streamed on Facebook and they will be archived on our website. And Douglas, I love that you are both a painter and a musician and you defy a label. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Um, It's great to be here. It's great to be uh, working at the 
Eastside Freedom Library. In fact, um, the first musical offering that was done at the library um, was Quasar, my ensemble, who will be playing on the 25th. This group comprises uh, Monkway Ndosi, Michelle Kinney, um, Davu Saru, uh, Babatunde Lee, Faye Washington, Carrie Thomas, Carrie Thomas, and myself. And we'll be doing original compositions. Some of the works will be improvised. Some of them will be things that I've written. And um, it's a really crucial ensemble in the sense of these are artists that have been working at their craft for many years, people that I deeply admire, and each person brings a crucial component to the ensemble. And I have it from a very good source that it's very good music. That's how I like to define what I what we're doing is that it's it's great music and that I try to escape the confines of genre. Um, I was using the example of saying, you know, what do you like to read? Some people like just a particular area, but I like to read anything that's readable. Uh, that's the way you find out about things, and even things that I initially think I don't like, I sometimes grow to like. It's, it's very much like food. Mm-hmm. Um, the only um, restriction I have is I've, I've been a vegetarian for a long time, and so I won't eat meat. But if it's a vegetable-based item or fruit, I will definitely try it. What I think is wonderful is that in during our break, you were saying you really have a relationship with both of these scholars' works. And I that, lo- and that uh, as a reader, you're looking forward to reading, but I, also you have a relationship. There are things that you can relate to in, in what they have discovered through their scholars. Th- well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Will's work um, talks about Chicago, which I spent many years in Chicago. I was trained there. I went to some of the other institutions to study music. And so it's endemic to my practice. Uh, Chicago's been a launching pad for me and still somewhere that I have a lot of tentacles and a lot of connections. A lot it, of heart. A lot of heart. Chicago is a powerful place, and I couldn't have landed there at a better time. You know, the, the Black Panthers... Um, uh, Elijah Muhammad. Um, you got there in 1963. Yeah, Muhammad Ali lived there. Mm. It was it's an incredible place. And when, and the South Side, when I went there, you talk about musical places to go, um, theaters, so on. The the neighborhood I live in is not far away from from the University of Chicago, which was also a, a great place for us in terms of uh, us being able to use some of their facilities to concertize. So it's, it's been a very important part of my um, development as an artist. And you had a piece that you wrote uh, about Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer, Hamer. is, is, a, is a, um, a civil rights icon mm-hmm. and and a goddess really and when you look at her life and what she she was a sharecropper and she didn't leave the plantation this is we're talking 50s for over 40 she grew up there and for about 40 years she never left because you were still very much like a slave you couldn't go anywhere you made such um, pittance as compensation, that you had no money to go anywhere. And when she decided to register to vote, that became... um, Her moment. A a moment, but also a dismantling for her in the sense of uh, you had to go. She she was told that if she didn't remove her name from the registry to be a voter, that she would have to leave the plantation. And... Not just her, but her children and so on. And they feared for their lives. She told, said to her husband, look, I will leave and then 
the onus will be on me and you can stay here. And her husband got the idea that, no, if if you leave and we stay, we're going to get the brunt of this. So they had to all evacuate. The point is that... She wasn't going to be intimidated. She wasn't going to be intimidated, but she had a big price to pay. Right. She was beaten. She was incarcerated. She was violated as a woman and so on. And But she became this powerful energizing force for people that didn't necessarily have the courage that she had. You know, oftentimes we think we're very courageous until you're challenged. Right. And when you're challenged with death, I think that's when you really see what, what the mantle is. Yeah. Yes. And so I have a composition dedicated to her and um, it's about revering and giving attention and respect to people that have paved the way for America's de democracy. People, many people, uh, and I'm thinking about white people that don't like to talk about this as about civil rights, human rights, mm -hmm. as though we've achieved it. We're so far away from it. Mm -hmm. um, however, with someone like Fannie Lou Hamer, we have a beacon. Of course, there are many other people that have fought and died. And I think, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer died very young. She was in her early 50s. And I think part of it was the beatings. You know, when she was locked up, she was beaten. The authorities had a, two black men to beat her until they were tired and exhausted from beating her. So you can imagine what toll that took on her. Nonetheless, she fired forward. That is an incredible story and, a, and an incredible reality. You know, a phrase that I think about that one of my friends who is a writer said, and she said, am I the hate I oppose? And I, I want people that are listening to think about that. Are you the hate that you oppose? Are you the things that you think you stand for, but that you are part of a system? You benefit from this system. Because often when we talk about things, people will say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm white, but I had nothing to do with it. That was you, a long time ago. Yes. That, it's, uh, it, that happened before I was even born. But the thing about privilege and wealth... It's inherited. Is, it's, it's, <laughs> and... and People tend to think of it as like my parents weren't millionaires, but small things, mm -hmm. being able to inherit a car, right. being able to inherit a house, being able to inherit even 5000 a $1,000 can transform what happens to you in life. And so those are the kinds of things I want people to in do some self-interrogation regarding. And what what are you doing to really change things, voter suppression, um, getting people to vote, uh, the lack of education, for example, that kind of disenfranchisement is something that goes on down the line. It's not something that just happens for that period of time, but I became educated because my parents and my grandparents were able to read and write, and I inherited the love of books, they read newspapers every day. That kind of thing impacts your thinking and your behavior. And as a result, I became an autodidact in many respects about the things that I became interested in. I make instruments, and at one time, I was trying to break into uh, exhibit exhibiting these works in museums and at first I was rebuffed and said well this is craft so well, the most important aspect of fine art comes out of craft and and craft when done on a high level is fine art mm. uh, of course I paint now but I was t I was talking about how you can be compartmentalized and stigmatized in a way that subverts your possibilities and whose judgment allows for that you know and and the the, the, why, mu yeah. the museums right, right, the curators right. and so on and, and the who are they predominantly <laughs> what culture seems to predominantly these own? are the things yeah. that people have to think about when they begin to speak and most importantly you need to read and mm -hmm. what i find is a lot of times people make statements 
and they're only getting their information from one or two sources. I look at everything. I look at things I don't like. Mm-hmm. I look at, I'm, I'm not a, I, I look at CNN, I look at NBC, I look at Fox, I look at all of it. And I read about people that disgust me so that I can speak from an informed point of view as to why uh, I don't relish them. And I think that's what we have to do. And in our next segment, I'm going to have all of us join in to talk about some of the root causes. We talked about money, we talked about wage, we talked about labels, we talked about immoral and who gets to make the decision about where women go when Hmm. they were young. What is all the root cause here? What's the connection? I'd love to have all of us join in and talk about that, Peter. Sure. And we'll be right back. Stay with us for another wonderful segment uh, with the Connections Radio Show featuring the Eastside Freedom Library. I'm Peter Rackler from the Eastside Freedom Library, and I'd like to tell you about an historic place on Payne Avenue. Brunson's Pub is a place where history and passion are a part of every detail, starting with the menu. The Payne-Phelan neighborhood arose from Dakota people who lived here for hundreds of years and pioneering immigrant communities, Irish, Swedes, German, and Italians, who made the East Side their home. More recently, waves of new residents from Asia, Latin America, and Africa continue the rich immigrant history and are revitalizing the community's cultural life and economy. Come experience Brunson's Pub at 956 Payne Avenue and grab a discounted gift card when you mention that you're an AM950 listener or a supporter of the Eastside Freedom Library. Be sure to check out Brunson'sPub.com. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Hello, this is Ralph Nader, host of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Join me and my guests every week when we dive deeply into the subjects that matter to you the most, but are rarely on the mass media. Every Monday at 6 a.m., and if you're not an early bird, 9 p.m. on Monday, right here on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com, from classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Cafe Latte offers made-from-scratch soups, salads, sandwiches, and mouth-watering desserts. Stop in the wine bar and enjoy a unique pizza loaded with fresh vegetables and perfectly roasted meats. Over 30 wines by the glass, Cafe Latte highlights Washington State wines and is the perfect destination for date night or an evening with friends. 850 Grand Avenue, St. Paul. Victor's 1959 Cafe has been serving South Minneapolis traditional Cuban food for over 15 years. Victor's is open for breakfast and lunch daily and now accepts dinner reservations too. Stop in and try the Pollo Tropicale or the Sandwich Cubano, which was featured on Food Network. More at eatlocalminnesota.com. Promoting happiness through health and helping out. That's Cocoa Bee and Nut Grain-Free Granola. Cocoa Bee and Nut is a locally made gluten-free grain-free granola that anyone can incorporate into their day, be it breakfast, lunch, dinner, or a snack. Our hearty blend of nuts and seeds mixed with honey, coconut oil, and healthy spices will make your taste buds tap dance and your heart will be happy knowing you've helped someone out. Yes, Cocoa Bee and Nut donates 10% of all sales to charity. For more information or to buy, visit CocoaBeeAndNut.com. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Mary Fitz, your host, and I've got Peter Ratcliffe, my co-host, and we celebrate on the first Saturday, and this is the first of the new year, uh, the Eastside Freedom Library. And for more information on the Eastside Freedom Library, I encourage you to go to the eastsidefreedomlibrary.org, and I'm going to let Peter close with our wonderful guests with some questions for us to think about and the connections that can be made. Right. Well, Douglas has asked us all to think about uh, these deep questions and and I just want to wrap up by asking each of these guests um, so given the face of 2020 and what what we're challenged with here in the United States what do you think the artist's responsibility or the historian's responsibility or the teacher's responsibility what is our responsibility in the in the face of the challenge and 
Who wants to go first? I'm going to have Sheila O'Connor go first, who's January 23rd, right. and she's okay. going to be doing uh, Evidence of V, a, a wonderful book. Go for it. Well, I wish I had an answer for this, uh. because I think that the time that we're living in is particularly challenging for artists, for scholars to to think about where our attention should be going and what are we contributing to the conversation. But I guess for me, I don't ever want to speak for other people, but for myself as an artist, I have to ask myself with every work, what am I, what am I saying and what am I adding to the dialogue and what is important for people to be thinking about and knowing in this moment and the moments change hourly yeah you know i mean it's it's shocking how quickly things change and how serious our attention has to be thank you yeah just for this the purposes of my book uh, one of the things i want to talk about is the complexities of identity Mm -hmm. and not flattening those things out. And it seems like it's getting flatter lately mm -hmm. that, that we can mm -hmm. just uh, have one identity that explains everything. Oh. And what I learned from the subjects in my book is they just didn't want to be this one identity. As that example I gave, when white coworkers would come to them and ask them to explain everything about black America, this one uh, African-American person that's in the office, it was demeaning to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they didn't have the answers for that, and they didn't want to uh, be that, just that person. They wanted their individuality. Uh, they wanted to recognize that there was differences among African Americans. And so let's get back to some more complexity. And Great. as you taught me in class, let's talk about class. Let's talk about class relations. And that's Will Cooley. He will be um, at the Eastside Freedom Library January 9th at 7 p.m. with uh, Chicago Blacks moving up and moving out. You know, I, Douglas. I think, I think that we we all have control of simple things that we can do. I think that's that's the biggest thing for us to look at. Just one thing that you can do that can help to change the paradigm, to change the the bigotry that all of us have in one form or another. And a, a lot of times we're looking too large. And, and, and we could just look at helping a neighbor. Um, voting, for example, is a crucial thing. Who can you drive to the polling station? Who can you help to register? And it's not based on partisanship, but the exercise of the democracy. I think those are the things that are important. And we've become so divisive. Partisan politics, I think, is the detriment of the country right now. And that's something that we have to move away from by self-interrogation and looking at a, a, a larger picture. In that sense, we need to look at the bigger picture. What are we giving our children? And that's Thank Douglas you. Ewart, who will be performing January 25th at 8 p.m., also on January 24th in interview at, at 3, 3 p.m. for an interview. Yes. And I take away what is our truth. And artists search for truth and finding truth and sharing truth and discovering truth and making the connection. In a world full of lies. <laughs> yes. mm, or, and truth. And truth. <laughs>